Welcome to the educational podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I am Isabel Moreno Hay, Director of the Orofacial Pain Program at the University of Kentucky. The American Academy of Orofacial Pain, also known as AAOP, is an organization of dentists and health providers dedicated to alleviating pain and suffering of patients through the promotion of excellence in education, research, and patient care in the field of orofacial pain and associated disorders. If you would like to learn more about the AOP and its mission, please visit our website at www.aaop.org. In today's podcast, we will be interviewing Dr. Dennis Bailey. Dr. Bailey is a general dentist with a practice limited to the management of sleep-related breathing disorders, utilizing oral appliances, as well as temporomandibular disorders or official pain and related headaches. He's a graduate of Indiana University School of Dentistry and completed a general practice residency at Miami Valley Hospital in Dayton, Ohio. He's a past president of the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine, is the founder and past chair of the Oral Appliance Section, and served on the Standards of Practice Committee for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. He frequently lectures both in the U.S. and internationally, and has authored numerous texts, articles, and chapters on the topic of sleep medicine and on the use of oral appliances by the dentist for the management of snoring and sleep apnea. For example, in October of 2001, he co-edited the Dental Clinics of North America entitled Sleep Disorders, Dentistry's Role. In 2010, the textbook that he co-authored with Dr. Atanasio, Dental Management of Sleep Disorders, was released and is now available from Wiley Blackwell. In addition, he was the guest editor for Dentistry's Role in Sleep Medicine in the 2010 March edition in the Sleep Medicine Clinics. In April of 2012, he published in the Dental Clinics of North America a text entitled Sleep Medicine for Dentistry. He's currently a visiting lecturer in the Orofacial Pain and Sleep Medicine program at UCLA School of Dentistry and is the co-director of the mini-residency in sleep medicine for the dentist. Dr. Bailey is past president of the Colorado Sleep Society and is the chair of the Sleep Medicine Committee for the American Academy of Orofacial Pain from 2012. He has diplomat status in the American Board of Orofacial Pain and in the American Board of Dental Sleep Medicine and is a fellow in the Academy of General Dentistry, the American Academy of Orofacial Pain and the International College of Dentists. I have had the pleasure of working with Dr. Bailey in the last two years, and it's for me a great honor to have him in today's podcast. I hope you will enjoy. In today's podcast, we are going to be discussing pediatric and adolescent sleep, a developing area with Dr. Bailey. Welcome again, Dr. Bailey. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Dr. Bailey, could you explain to us why is pediatric and adolescent sleep and airway issues so important? The main reason is the impact that breathing can have upon craniofacial growth and development. And this can take on many forms. It can uh, present itself as skeletal issues, such as class two malocclusions that are skeletal more than dental, but appear as dental as well. It can cause narrow dental arches, particularly in the maxilla, which leads to bilateral or unilateral crossbites. 
All of this has been well known for decades. Uh, I first learned of this back in the late 70s into the early 80s when some of the first studies were coming out of Europe on the implications of uh, the route of respiration and how it impacted cranial facial growth. There were studies done back then on rhesus monkeys, uh, studies that you'd never get away with today, but studies that were done that showed that if you uh, obliterated the nasal breathing and caused the monkey to be totally a mouth breather, uh, various changes in their growth and development would occur, uh, such as I just mentioned, uh, more class twos, more narrow arches, uh, open bites, all, all types of different uh, cranial facial dysplasias, we'll call them. So the implication of airway issues, and I don't want to focus on airway meaning sleep apnea. Let's strictly stay with the concept of airway or route of respiration or how the patient breathes. can have a marked impact upon their cranial facial development, their growth and development, and it can have an impact upon them from a behavioral standpoint or point of view as well. So there's many, many things that uh, come into play when it comes to addressing pediatric and adolescent airway issues. So how is pediatric and adolescent sleep different as compared to adult sleep? There's many differences that occur. We cannot use the same parameters, for instance, of how we view or measure various airway problems in adults and apply them to children. Uh, the pediatric patient is going through, because of growth and development, is going through a variety of processes that really change over time, particularly as you get from pediatrics, meaning, say, pre-puberty to puberty and into young adulthood. And that presents a problem as well. When do you stop viewing this individual as an adolescent and view them as an adult? We just can't use the standard, they're 18, so now they're an adult type uh, concept. But the bottom line is, is that when you look at a pediatric patient at a very early age, many of the problems they have then can begin to multiply as they go into their later years, particularly into adolescence or their teenage years. In addition to that, and I'll address this uh, a little bit later as well, but the actual sleep patterns of the pediatric patient changes as compared to the um, uh, pediatric, the pediatric patient uh, sleep profile changes as they go into adolescence and then as they go into adulthood. Another problem that's out there is just purely the recognition of these individuals. Uh, many kids are not viewed as having significant airway issues just because they say are a mouth breather or they, they have some behavioral issues. And so there's a lot of different things that have to be looked at. And lastly, the difference is, is that there's not a lot of pediatric sleep doctors out there or pediatric pulmonologists. This is mostly relegated to university settings and hospitals. You don't see the private practicing people uh, like pulmonologists, DNTs, neurologists who are delving into sleep in the adult population. And what are some of the more common symptoms and signs of a pediatric and adolescent airway issue? Well, the first sign, I don't think I'd call it a symptom, but the first sign that a pediatric patient 
is at risk for an airway issue is very simply just chronic mouth breathing. Now, when these patients are mouth breathers, and I'm not talking about just during the day, it's predominantly at night. So you oftentimes can't make an association by looking at the patient during the day and assuming that that's what occurs during the nighttime. But the bottom line is, is that it all starts with mouth breathing. And this can be due to a variety of factors. It can be due to allergy. It can be due to nasal airway obstruction, either anatomically or physiologically. Uh, the route of respiration, meaning through the nose versus the mouth, is very critical in these patients. But the mouth breathing habit is the key symptom or the key finding, sign, if you will, of what is initially going on with these patients. And once you identify a patient who is a mouth breather, then these patients are on their way to having worsened problems. And the mouth breathing problem can uh, basically evolve into a snoring problem, which evolves potentially into a more serious sleep apnea problem. But that may not present itself in either pediatrics or adolescents. That may not present itself until well into their 20s and 30s where they may just be chronic mouth breathers with intermittent snoring. And then that just basically progresses to a worsening condition and presents other problems as well, such as a dry mouth, which leads to more mouth breathing, which leads to more snoring, so forth and so on. Other signs and symptoms in the pediatric population uh, that have been attributed to this, and I mentioned some of the dental findings, but one of the findings that's really interesting is a thing called allergic shiners. These are dark circles that occur in the inferior border usually, but can surround the entire eye. But typically, it's this dark patch or dark area that's below the uh, bottom eyelid. And they can vary in intensity. They can be very, very dark or very, very subtle in terms of a change in coloration. But this in the literature for decades has been referred to as the allergic shiner. It's called an allergic shiner because the patient is not nose breathing like they should. They're mostly mouth breathing. And so consequently, what happens is, is that there's a pooling of venous blood in the pterygoid plexus of veins, which causes a venous stasis. And this venous stasis leads to inflammation and the venous supply of blood flow in the inferior border of the eye then is affected. And so you see this dark area under the eye. That is a tremendous sign that somebody, a child is at risk for a mouth breathing pattern, even though they may be sitting in front of you and they look like they're breathing just fine through the nose. We have to remember that nighttime breathing and daytime breathing are not the same. A lot of things change. It can be due to posture, it can be due to increased nasal inflammation or whatever. So the allergic shiner is the first thing. A lack of lip competence is another where they can't get their lips together adequately. So this would indicate to you that they're not breather. One of the things I tell people all the time is that when these patients are sitting in front of you and you're kind of talking to them and their lips are to together, very subtly the lips will separate a little bit. And you'll kind of see them take like a sigh or a deep breath, and then the lips close again. That's another sign that this patient is potentially a mouth breather, more so in the nighttime. Other symptoms that the patient may have, and these are ones that are most readily attributable to an airway problem in children, is nocturnal enuresis, 
<clears throat> nocturnal enuresis is, is a, a big problem where they continue to have bedwetting episodes, whether it be acute or chronic or intermittent and chronic. Uh, this is due to sleep fragmentation. The sleep fragmentation leads to core body temperature changes, which uh, initiates the enuresis that may occur during the nighttime. Uh, other symptoms that have been attributed to it are things like ADD and ADHD uh, or just pure hyperactivity. And we have to be careful about labeling a child as an ADD or ADHD individual when it may be just a simple matter of just um, hyperactivity that occurs. Uh, other things are lack of attention, uh, inability to concentrate, falling asleep in school, acting out in school, behavioral issues. Uh, things that we would normally attribute to, well, they're just a kid, they're just growing up. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, when there's other problems that are starting to multiply, you've got to start to think that maybe it's related to an inadequate amount of sleep. And then dentally, like I mentioned before, you can look for crossbites, narrow dental arches, uh, anterior open bites, tongue thrusting, tongue scalloping. Uh, and another one looking into the airway is adenotonsillar, we can't see the adenoids very well, so I labeled it as both, but tonsillar hypertrophy, where the tonsils are abnormally swollen, they don't allow for an adequate airway, which lends itself to more mouth breathing. And lastly, coating on the back of the tongue. Uh, we don't give enough uh, credit to the fact that a lot of these kids, because of the way they breathe and some of the airway issues they have, they may also have an acid reflux problem. And so at night, when reflux can be worse, this may be causing some coating on the tongue and can even in some instances be related to nasal airway obstruction. Is their sleep different uh, at different ages? Very much so. And this is part of the problem is that we tend to want to say that the kids should conform to basically the adult uh, uh sleep profile, we'll call it, or sleep schedule, that they should have a regular bedtime and a regular awakening. And so school schedules dictate basically that sleep time and that awakening time. Younger children require more sleep. They should have 10 to 12 hours of sleep per night. I'm talking about kids that are four, five, and six. Once they get into the school age, Uh, somewhere between around 10 hours of sleep, nine to 10 hours of sleep is recommended. There's actually a great view of this on the website for the National Sleep Foundation. Now, when they get to be teens, they still should be getting more than eight or nine hours of sleep per night. Well, two things happen as they reach the teenage years. There is a known change in their circadian rhythm, which means that their natural tendency to want to go to bed at a predetermined time is not the same anymore. Uh, as many of us know who have been around or have had teenagers in the household, that teenagers like to stay up late and get up late, and particularly as they get into the middle school and high school years. Well, this is a naturally occurring circadian rhythm that they have. This has been proven that their circadian clock is advanced two hours beyond ours. This is some circles is referred to as delayed sleep phase syndrome, meaning that there's an intentional or purposeful delay of sleep onset, which then lends itself to a continuation of 
the sleep period throughout the morning hours where they're not typically ready to get up at six or seven in the morning. They'd like to be in bed at eight, nine, and 10. So it creates another dilemma. And that being school schedules, because in middle school and high school, they want the kids in school at seven or 8 a.m., which interferes with this natural circadian pathway. So there is a difference in the sleep profile between pediatrics, adolescents, and then into adulthood. So as the adolescents uh, reach adulthood, meaning 18 to 25, uh, they start to have a shift in that circadian pathway, and it conforms more to what we would call a, quote, normal uh, sleep pattern, where we go to bed uh, at a certain time, like 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, and arise most mornings the same hour, 6, 7, 8 o'clock, whatever it might be, allowing for a, a normal amount of sleep, meaning 7 to 9 hours as an adult uh, throughout our lifespan. And what is the role of the dentist as it relates to pediatric and adolescent sleep and airway issues? The role of the dentist is simply to be aware of the fact that airway issues may exist in this younger age group. That airway issues and what's typically only focused on sleep apnea is not the only problem. Like I said before, it all starts with mouth breathing. And the reason it all starts with mouth breathing is because if we don't breathe through our nose, the nose being the carburetor of the body, we're not going to get adequate oxygenation. And that lends itself to changes in respiratory patterns. So the bottom line is, is that uh, the dentist may see patients, like I said before, that are mouth breathers who have incompetent lip seals, kids who may look like they uh, have failure to thrive, they look healthy, uh, kids who are overweight. This is a big problem. Weight is a big contributing factor in this age group. Uh, in addition, they look for the allergic shiners. And then, of course, the typical things that dentists look for and screen for uh, are malocclusions and looking at crossbites, looking at uh, dental crowding, uh, looking at the open bites, uh, maybe looking at elongated soft palates, and then once again, looking back in the oropharynx and observing that the tonsils may be enlarged. But the dentist has a significant role to play because they can observe these children, their behavior, and that enables them to be able to uh, say, well, maybe we should start asking some more questions and uh, delve into this in a little bit more detail and determine if there is, in fact, an airway issue that's developing here. So are there ways to screen for sleep and airway issues in this age group? There are. There's a number of uh, forms, much like is used in adults. Um, for instance, uh, there's a variation of the upward sleepiness scale that has that's uh, for pediatrics. that kind of looks at some different things about bedtime and and other behaviors other than what the classical uh, Epworth sleeping scale does. Uh, there's a, a scale called the bear scale, which looks at bedtime and resistance to uh, going to sleep and whether they snore and, and uh, whether they have daytime sleepiness. Uh, there's other studies or other questionnaires. Well, there's a group of them called I'm sleepy. It's I apostrophe M sleepy. And the nice thing about this one is it has both a patient version and a child version. Uh, they're very similar in terms of the questions they ask, but the patient and parent version enables us to get both the perspective of the parents and of the child, what they think is going on. Now, that's very difficult in the very young children 
But as they get a little bit older, seven, eight and above, you can start to ask more in-depth questions about what's going on. But the basic way to screen for a, an airway issue is the observation, like I mentioned before, the clinical signs and symptoms. But the other thing is to just simply ask some questions. You know, what is your sleep like? Uh, do, you, do you go to bed at a regular time? How long does it take you to fall asleep? There are a lot of kids who go to bed and they don't go to sleep right away. They may read in bed. And of course, one of the big problems in today's world is electronics. They may be on their phone. And this has been shown to be a big culprit in terms of the disruption of the normal sleep-wake cycle in children and adolescents, particularly the adolescents. Uh, the problems that can occur is they're just not tired. They, their minds are running full speed. They, they aren't prepared to go to bed. And this is part of that circadian rhythm change that's occurring where they're uh, delayed sleep phase. So they're delaying the onset of sleep a little bit beyond what it should be. Um, so asking these questions and just basically looking at things clinically and putting the picture together can indicate that these children are at risk or some type of airway problem or airway issue that's disrupting their sleep. And then, of course, asking about snoring. Does the parent observe snoring? You know, the interesting thing in most studies is, and the National Sleep Foundation actually did an entire uh, Sleep in America poll on pediatric and adolescent sleep a number of years ago. It's very good, and you can, you can observe it right on their website. But the interesting thing is, is that these children... Uh, when they're asked, you know, how long does it take you to get to sleep? And they'll put down, you know, well, it can take me anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours. And the parents think, oh, yeah, they went to bed. The lights are off. They're asleep. And so there's a big disparity between what the parents think is happening and what the kids actually report is happening. That's an interesting finding. But asking questions once you observe, observe something clinically or you see something with the child that may indicate that, uh, yeah, there's probably an airway problem here and maybe we should delve into this just a little bit further and ask more questions and see what the answers are. Are there health concerns in this age group similar to the ones we have in adults that suffer from sleep disorders? Yes, this is becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger problem. The major health issues in children that are seen are primarily related to weight gain. And so we're talking about age of onset of either diabetes type 2 or pre-diabetes conditions, insulin resistance, if you will. Uh, there's been an increase uh, of observation of prevalence of hypertension in younger children. I mean, we as dentists, uh, we may take blood pressures on our adult patients. I don't know very many dentists who take blood pressures on pediatric patients, but there's some studies out there of increased number of hospitalizations just related to hypertension in these children. But it goes back to obesity and the health concerns related to obesity. I mean, it can affect their cholesterol. It can affect, like I said, their insulin. Uh, it can have a marked impact upon their breathing because if they're more overweight, they may have more fatty tissue in the neck, which constricts the airway more and causes them to have more of a breathing problem. Uh, also, if they're overweight, uh, the abdominal girth that they're possessing 
really impacts their breathing at night and creates more labored breathing. Uh, I had mentioned previously about the coating on the back of the tongue and the potential for acid reflux or GERD. And a lot of these kids may have very subtle forms of what we call silent reflux, where the reflux is present, but they don't complain of acid indigestion or heartburn like many adults do. But what happens is, is that the acid reflux, particularly the gaseous portions of it, get back up into the lungs or into the nasal passages. And what gets back up into the lungs that they breathe in creates more inflammation. And this leads to more asthmatic symptoms in these children. So the rise in asthma in the pediatric and adult population should be something of concern that may indicate an airway issue or a breathing issue. Nasal congestion, I had mentioned before, the nose is the carburetor of the body. Well, basically, you want to make sure that these kids are good nose breathers, that they can breathe air through the nose, that it's getting warmed and humidified, so oxygen levels are good. Well, along with that, the increased incidence of allergy plays a big role with these kids. And so allergy causes them to have um, more potential mouth breathing and less nasal breathing. One of the therapies that's oftentimes uh, indicated is to just use a, a very simple uh, nasal spray and nasal rinses to help irrigate the nose and, and clear up the nasal congestion to help them to breathe better. So, yes, there are health concerns that need to be looked at. Uh, the weight issue, and of course, the weight issue relates to dietary issues. They may eat more junk food. They may have, not have a good diet, more sugary food, so forth and so on that can play into this as well. So, yeah, we need to be on guard for health problems that may exist in, the, in this age group. What about sleep studies? Are they needed or necessary? Well, this is part of the screening process. And once we do the screening process and we observe that a child uh, may be at risk for sleep apnea, in other words, let's say we ask the questions and we've, we've determined that the child's a mouth breather. We've determined that the child has some airway issues and the child is presenting with some growth and development issues. Well, the next step would be to obviously ask the question, do you snore? And if the answer is yes, and there's daytime sleepiness and there's other behavioral issues, then consulting with the pediatrician or the family doctor about the potential need for a sleep study may be there. The difficulty with sleep studies in children is twofold. Number one, there aren't a lot of, of uh, physicians who specialize in pediatric sleep. There are, there are no residencies available like there are for adult sleep apnea or pediatric sleep apnea. And so there's no training programs where they can get a fellowship in sleep, in sleep uh, disordered breathing or in sleep apnea. The other problem is getting a sleep study done is a big chore. Most sleep centers won't do it. You have to start to look to uh, 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 hospital situations or universities where there may be a pediatric pulmonologist or a pediatric sleep doctor. They can be pulmonologists or ENTs usually, but they may be uh, people who are doing uh, pediatric sleep, and they would be the ones to consult with as well. Interestingly, pediatricians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, in 2002 and then again in 2012, had published uh, guidelines that they should be screening for sleep disordered breathing, sleep apnea, and snoring in children. And when I lecture on this and I talk to people of, who have children, actually, and I say, does your pediatrician talk about sleep? Do they talk about 
uh, sleep breathing disorders. They screen for snoring and sleep apnea. The answer oftentimes comes back, not that I've ever heard, not that I'm aware of. So by just simply asking those questions, and then, of course, if they're snoring, many times I'll say to the parent, why don't you kind of observe the patient while, the, you know, your child while they're sleeping and just see if they're, if you notice any pauses in breathing. And if they do notice that or they do observe that, uh, then maybe a sleep study would be indicated. But I would not rush out to do a sleep study if you've simply identified mouth breather or you've identified a patient who may have an airway problem that lends itself to or potentially could lend itself to the development of sleep apnea. And the reason is from things I've cited before, that these patients are going to go through different stages with growth and development. And if different aspects of growth and development are impacted as they grow and age, the potential of sleep apnea may disappear or may become sort of inconsequential or may not even be present at that time. So I wouldn't rush out and do a sleep study, but if there's a suspicion of it, I would talk with the family doctor or the pediatrician and get their uh, input as far as whether or not that may be important. And what are the options for management? You know, that's interesting because there, there's a lot of different things that can be done. Uh, just for instance, just palatal expansion can have a marked impact upon the airway and improve their breathing. Uh, there are different types of intraoral appliances that can be used uh, that will help to correct uh, maybe a little bit of jaw position or correct tongue position or help with the swallow. Um, I don't want to endorse any one product on this podcast, but I think people need to be aware that there are different methodologies out there that can be utilized by the dentist that are very simple, very straightforward. I've used them for decades and have had phenomenal results with these different products. Um, they're, they're just simple, like little mouth guards that the patient wears. They're prefabricated. They come in a variety of sizes. Uh, that's one of the things that can be done. The other uh, things that can be done are if there's a, a nasal problem, get them to an ENT. They may need to have uh, uh, something done, hopefully not, that's surgical, uh, but they may need to have something looked at there. I mentioned palatal expansion before. That is probably one of the, besides tonsillar or adenoid removal, is probably one of the most uh, important aspects to consider when but he has a sleep breathing disorder and an adolescent or pediatric patient has a sleep breathing disorder. Other management strategies involve looking at the freedom of the tongue. There's been a lot of uh, discussion about what's called posterior tongue tie. Uh, this may be playing into it to some degree because the tongue can't uh, exist up in the palate like it should. So it lays low and flat and the base of the tongue then is back into the airway more. Myofunctional therapy has been a major player in helping kids with tongue posture alone to help with their breathing. And then just teaching them breathing exercises and making them aware of what's going on. But the bottom line is whatever is done, work in concert with the family physician, with the pediatric physician, uh, make sure that it's a team approach because these are growing individuals and impacting their growth can be very, very helpful in terms of not, I don't want to say curing the problem, but but managing it most appropriately. And finally, what is the future related to sleep and air, airway in this younger age group? I think this is really 
major area that any dentist who's involved in looking at airway or dealing with adults who have sleep breathing disorders, snoring or sleep apnea, needs to look at the child population. I mean, a lot of kids who have these problems are going to have adults or parents rather that have sleep apnea or have a sleep breathing problem or are snorers. And so there's no genetic predisposition to, to snoring and sleep apnea. However, there is genetic predisposition to craniofacial growth and development. And that is a major player in all of this. Uh, I would encourage any dentist who's interested in learning more about pediatric sleep or adolescent sleep to start to take more in-depth courses. And there aren't a lot, just like for the physicians, there's not a lot out there. They have to kind of self-invent themselves. Well, for the dentist, it's kind of the same thing. We've kind of wanted to see our orthodontic and pedodontic colleagues get involved in this, but it's very limited in terms of the number of people in those fields who pay attention to the airway. Even though the American Association of Orthodontics came out with a white paper on sleep breathing disorders, their focus was more on the adolescent population and not enough on the younger population. And we need to start early. A lot of the, the management techniques that I mentioned with these oral devices start very early three, four, five. Now, some people say, wow, that's ludicrous. That's really crazy. But it's not really crazy because anything we can do to help improve the airway is going to help to improve their growth. It's going to improve their growth and development and their their maturation process. And if it can help with their behavioral issues, that, that's a win-win situation. So I would say to the average dentist that's out there who's involved in, in adult airway issues, again, sleep breathing disorders, Start learning about pediatric and adolescent sleep and start learning about how you can help, if not just direct these patients, get involved in the management of these patients for their future because uh, they're, they're our future. I mean, the next, the generations coming up are the future of this country or of the world, and we need to make them as healthy as we can possibly make them. This was really informative. Thank you very much, Dr. Bailey, for sharing your time and your knowledge with all of us. Isabel, it's been a great pleasure to be able to do this particular podcast on pediatric and adolescent sleep, and I hope it stimulates a lot of people to begin to look into where they can get more knowledge and, and uh, become more aware of how to help this group of patients in our patient population. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you would like to learn more about this subject or any other topics, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.aalp.org. It was my pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you for listening. The AAOP podcasts are now available in iTunes. I want to thank Dr. El Fati Eisa for his technical support.